Hey everybody, and welcome back to the fall of the House of X. Which feels no, we're like- not at we're not at those yet. We're oh, just at the regular fall. What? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was trying to do all these witty tweets, and I was like, "This is the fall of X," but we're immediately going into the fall of the House of X, which coincides with the rise I- of the powers of X. And, so much uh, falling. You're Fine. Nico Action. I'm Nico. Find me at Nico Action. This is X's for show. I'm done. <laughs> And I'm TK. You can find me at TK Elemental. And I'm your producer, Kevo. You can find me at Kevo Really. And since this is a comic broadcast, you can find me uh, in the corner. In my producer corner. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a really interesting time to talk about X-Men and the word producer. Because one of the things that I really want to hit on um, is how absolutely fucking fabulous my hat is. I just I need to uh, say that someone who loves me very much uh, just might have gotten me uh, this unbelievable hat, and I just need to remind everybody. I forgot to check about it and check in about this. Did everybody else get their hats? No, not yet. Because okay. it's gonna be on camera. It's gonna be a family. It's okay, a family affair. Okay, MJ's getting it crunk, right? <laughs> so, um, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about. With this run of X Men, where we things that I think is really frustrating for me about the nature of where we're at with the X books is the role that the editors play, the editor in chiefs play, the role that is played by the bigger picture of this behind the scenes framework. It's become so mysterious and uh, it's starting to feel like you have to unravel that like an issue of gods. It's become mysterious. It's become really vital. We're seeing it touch the production of the uh, TV movie world. Um, We are starting to... You know, as much as I like it, I'm I'm I have some cynical feelings when I see it sometimes, but as much as I can understand the the cuteness and the sweetness of those regular uh adventures and poor taste X-Men Mondays where Jordan D. White goes and answers a bunch of questions and you know has some has some banter and some witty rapport and uh you know, I think it's great to be accessible, but uh, It's really tough when so much stuff happens that is very difficult to understand. And a lot of times the answer to this is difficult to understand and it really kind of hurt my feelings maybe or made me unsure that this is like a thing that would be healthy for me to keep reading. The response is, I'm not actually going to answer that question. You just have to trust that this was a great idea and it'll all be fine and you'll be so happy when it's over. And before I can answer that question, I've been fired from the office and moved to the, not fired, lateral move to the Venom and Hulk office. But, you know, I, there were some questions about like, hey, the Hellfire Gala is pretty rough. And the response was just kind of like, you guys don't trust enough. And then it's like, when you leave, I sort of think maybe I was right. And somebody said like, you have to leave because. Okay. Yeah. I need to, I just need to, I need to, I need it's a tiny little tag symbol that I got going. Right. Um, And that, that tiny little tag symbol is, 
it's a lateral move the way being transferred from the uh, 11 o'clock news in New York to the uh, 10 p.m. news on the local affiliate in Pittsburgh is a lateral move. Uh, and I do not mean that as an insult to Jordan D. White. I kind of think that this is an example of where maybe Marvel needs to be thinking a little bit bigger. Because when I said what I said earlier, I wasn't coming for editors, right? <clears throat> I'm trying to express that, like, these editors are now players. And mm -hmm. we all kind of went, hmm, look at how they kind of forgot about Teeny Howard. Mm. And then we all went, hmm. Look how they forgot about this person or wow, it sure is the Steve show these days. Everything's Orlando Fox, which, by the way, Orlando Fox is uh, the name of every daddy I ever flirted with on Scruff. Um, yep. If it was in Disney World, uh, his name was Orlando Fox or something, you know, uh, but we see those trajectories. We see those identities of a character's transformation as much as we, see, I'm sorry, I meant to say an editor, as much as we see it for a character now. Like, well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I think character was not a not much of a Freudian slip because they become, the, obviously the Jordan D. White that we know through, uh, you know, adventures and poor taste interviews. And just, I like, you know, I loved her more than anybody this side of Bianca Dell. But uh, when Joan would show up on The Tonight Show, you weren't like, Joan Rivers must have some new fucking thing out. You were like, mm, she's here to be with her friend. And like, yeah. that is a little bit, you know, I'm not like, oh man, adventures in poor taste. They're getting uh, inside information that nobody's had since WikiLeaks. It's like your buddy adventures in poor taste gets you. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually kind of speaks to one of the other things that I'm feeling a lot of, which is, uh, and to drive on to some other points you mentioned, right, seeing right the lack of Leah Williams and Teeny Howard, Leah Williams for a long time, Teeny Howard more recently not doing the uh, Betsy Braddock Marvel. No, it's Orlando Fox. No, it's Orlando Fox. And I just <laughs> feel like um, the boys club vibe is very much there and very much not my favorite. And when you talk about like, hey, Adventures in Poor Taste scoops every single piece of X-Men news because probably this guy who is their friend uh, goes to them. And we've seen this happen throughout comics. There are podcasts that get really fantastic interviews because of the connections that they have to people they happen to know the murderer exactly uh, a very important show that we're all listening to uh, <laughs> fantastic reference um and that's all you know industries have networking that is all fine and dandy it is acceptable but in all of this it has just felt like Hey guys, we're giving you more unprecedented access than ever. No, you don't ever get to judge what you're seeing because even though you have more access than ever, you don't have anywhere near the whole story. Uh, and so if you feel a certain way and it's positive, that's great. Ride those vibes out and just keep going. If you don't like it, you don't actually know what's happening. And even though you think you might, because we're telling you more than we've ever told you before, uh, you don't because you not liking it is a sign that you don't know anything. So just sit there, be quiet and let this all play out. Uh, which is a weird... 
there's never a point at which anybody's like, it's very possible you're not going to like everything that happens by the end of Fall of X. And when we get there, no, they, maybe they're no, 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 they would not. They would never. Nope. Why would you? They, exactly. Exactly. But then I, my thing is like, if that's the case, if we're never going to have that moment of reckoning, I don't really need uh, regular updates uh regular x-men monday updates with answers because those aren't real answers that's not we're not having a real conversation we're having a pr uh jump where you're hoping to whip up some joy and if you don't whip up any joy we're walking away that's that's imbalanced to me and you know i want to say two things about all of this yeah number one um one of the things that really comes to mind with what we're talking about is that we now live in an advancement of fan culture right so i mean when you said more unprecedented access than ever. You're right-ish. I mean, you're correct. Yes, that's what they say. But like, you're right that the lie is that it's only true-ish. Right. Um, because part of that I think about is like, you know, Drag Race has untucked and untucked has uh, a pretty, you know, famous motto of, you know, you've out untucked, you're only getting half the story. If you're not watching untucked, you're yeah. only getting half the Yeah. But the other side of it is sort of like if you're watching Untucked, you're getting double brainwashed because yeah. it's the same people feeding you the same narrative. Right. It's so, not as though they allow one fan to stick a secret camera somewhere and then that just gets broadcast no matter what is said or done. The same people that just edited the show you watched where some horrible villain won the challenge then edit the Untucked where the horrible villain gets some story about their dead mom so that you don't think of them as a villain for five minutes so that there's more dramatic tension towards the end am i arrogant do you think i'm arrogant do you, do you think i'm arrogant i said what i said anyway um oh my god my favorite sentence in the history of television is i said what i said anyway um the other thing about this that i really want to touch on uh, from your comments that i yep. love so much is one of the things that we have found ourselves in uh, with the state of comic fandom at the moment is so much of fandom shapes the reactions that we sort of get from um, these these bigger movements, right? Because like whether it's through like Snap, right? So something I saw that I thought was really cool um, was both Snap and Puzzle Quest both got uh, tie-ins to the same upcoming marvel product and i got like an email telling me all about it which i just thought was really great um so you know there's a thousand different ways they try to synergistically get us product and idea and information i've never been more confused about the company uh the, the brand identity the the look that they're trying to express to me with what's going on right now it's basically a television network lineup just at the x-men and the problem with that is a television network doesn't tell a single story like i can't be like mm -hmm, this is hulu's theme this week did everybody catch the 37 part crossover on hulu and i guess i think now is a good time to bring in our big question because i think we're already answering it but it is basically how are you feeling at the end of fall of x uh and i mean this is exactly it uh, I'm feeling all of the frustration that we've just talked about with sort of, cause I've been, you know, I didn't like where Hellfire Gala went. I thought, uh, it was, you know, it bordered on traumatic to read as a, as a queer person. Uh, and there was a lot of response that was just like, Hey, our job is to challenge you, uh, which 
I don't buy. But then it was also like, you need to keep reading because I think you'll be really happy. And fair point. Uh, you know, you do have to keep reading. But now I'm at the end. I don't know that I'm super happy. And I'm so glad you brought up our reactions to Hellfire Gala because I'm with you. I'm kind of like, I don't know. I think about like um, the hear me out, everybody. There is a way in which the Bloodhound Gang outperformed Prince. Let me talk about this. When I think about uh, the Bloodhound Gang's The Bad Touch, a song that gets you put on a list just for looking up on Spotify. Um, yeah. What ultimately works about this very horny, dirty song is outside of the Depeche Mode-esque production, outside of the super sexual, you know, nonsense where they're clearly trying to give a vibe. It's actually a catchy song. Like yeah. They actually did their job. It's a well-made song at the end of the day. The other day when uh, TK was here uh, hanging out, spending the holidays with us, right? Uh, where this beautiful hat made it into my life. Um, he, we watched a video of every time Prince charted in the Billboard Top 100. And don't get me wrong. I'm not here to knock cream. But there is some stuff like in the early 90s where it's like Prince and the new power generation where the song is basically called him a chomp on that butthole. And like it just isn't a hit. And it's because he is just being so explicit. Like some of these songs are called like Areola Diamond Princess. <laughs> and you can understand where that failed um, while the bad touch succeeded. And that's Hellfire Gala for me. I'm so sorry. That's Hellfire Gala for me. It's, um, you know, let me chomp on your butthole when it should be the bad touch. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. I think a lot of this is... I don't even I, I almost want to say I reject the premise only because I'm like I don't even think we should have done this in the first place we shouldn't have even produced that song uh, but like okay if you felt this is what you needed to do I get it I get the idea that uh, adversity uh, is is a big part of comics in general like there always has to be a villain this was just such an elaborate scheme to just kind of tr almost to tread water without saying you were treading water uh, for for five months. It's it's that idea that maybe they can keep stretching the notion. Yeah. What if we build up a prelude to the prelude to the prelude? Right. right. And, and the fact that they call the next thing the fall of the House of X sort of is exactly that where I'm just like, well, what even was I just doing then? That bit the horse, that ate the dog, that ate the cat, that ate the rat, and I'm done. Yeah. It's, you know, the other thing that this also conjures up for me is uh, a parallel experience with what brought me in to this era. You know, for those of you who haven't been uh, longtime listeners, those of you who are, uh, you know, fans of a different iteration of the show, I was lured back to modern comics. I hadn't bought a modern comic in, other than Daredevil, which I always collect. I hadn't bought, like, even if I don't read it, it sits in a pile. Um, I hadn't bought a modern comic uh, in like three years, four years. I just quit. I couldn't do it anymore. It just made me so mad. And then Krakoa happened and I was there in an instant. Oh, hey, Allie, we, Allie, Allie, it's a hammer don't hurt me situation. Uh, Allie, you are our galactic. So uh, no one could ever uh. hurt you. Welcome to the show. We think you're so great. Um, 
so the the premise of Krakoa brought me back to modern comics. Um, and as as I'm reading it, and I'm seeing that there's like everybody talking about how like we knew Krakoa was coming. Of course, nobody could have known it was going to be, you know, so revolutionary. Um, because if everybody was like, oh, it's Hickman, it would definitely be revolutionary, gods. Um, so the thing I now wonder is how long ago did this become a Rosencanny? When did this get the, oh, well, do whatever you want because we're going to reboot it anyway. Yeah. When did that edict go into effect? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I have questions. And at this point, the thing that I'm really going with, like that I'm working through is I don't really expect good answers. Uh, I don't expect answers I could trust. And I don't expect answers, period. You know, I don't even know that I want them. But if I were to go pursue them, I don't know uh, that I would get anything out of it at this point. And it's just kind of sort of trying to figure out where we go. (laughs) No, the answers always matter. I need a book about it. I mean, you know. I, this that that's a huge part of my brain it's it is that that exact <laughs> voice is screaming in my head but i'm just sort of like i can't keep doing this over and over again uh, you know especially when it feels like we can't uh have a healthy status quo that appeals to i think what makes the x-men great and that's a longer bigger conversation but uh you know i sure know that we've been hearing a lot more about x-men 97 and then what's going to happen after x-men 97 as the mutants start showing up in the mcu than ever before but if you want to get excited about x-men 97 you might want to check out our upcoming video of me painstakingly building that beautiful, beautiful X-Jet. Yes. Uh, I do a, a live build. Uh, it took me about an hour and 10 minutes, which is a little slower than I would have liked. But I'm telling you right now, the amount of navy blue uh, made me feel colorblind. And that's so, not bad for no prep time, though. So, uh, um, so and- uh, well, I'm so sorry, though. The, 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 the smartest person that tells me what to think, um, Tori, just wait in. Um, I this poor human Tori is not an encyclopedia Torcanica. Yeah, but um, I just Tori, this would be like the worst possible place to to jump in. Um, yeah, and I like I think it's like I, I we've got till probably May before the next place where I think it might even be possible. Let alone I think they said it's July. I think they said uh, from the ashes is July. Sure. How do we feel about that and events like this being so off-putting to new readers? Who is it off-putting to? That's my. You just said. No, no, it's off-putting to Tory. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. But because, like, for every Tory, there's a a Rebecca, and Rebecca is a modern, equally educated, equally competent, um, dynamic fan with an extensive history in various forms of fandom. And she might think that this is 
great. I think the reality is we know Tori uh, and we know this is not the moment for her. No, I mean, I don't think I'd tell Rebecca to jump on here either. I think I think from the ashes is probably it. I think a little bit before that, because there's stuff like X-Men Forever oh, no, coming. Hold on. I need a second. I have to make my fake Rebecca account to start spamming the chat. Well, yeah, please. Um, and also, you know, let's she would be that girl. Let's, <laughs> let's jump in and start talking about some of these books. Um, sure. Uh, can we start with Immortal? Well, yeah. I mean, we're going to start with with the big with the ongoings and the big There's three. There's a script, sir. <laughs> uh, uh, series contributor Jonah has my computer right now. Well, and that's yeah. But you, you, you know, you you guessed perfect. We are starting with with the big three ongoings, uh, which we're are with the good X. <laughs> oh, we love her. Uh, you know, we got X Men, uh, Immortal X Men, and X Men Red. Those were our guiding light going through this. You know, we knew these were continuing after the Hellfire Gala. Um, go for it. I'm re- I'm so, I'm not I'm just ready. No, I mean like that's all, that's kind of all we had. We knew we were yeah. these were continuing. We were getting all of these minis and the minis were just like this is chaos, which we'll talk about soon. But these all have long, you know, this uh both X-Men uh Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red ended at 18, uh but they had been already going a year before this and X-Men's going to go on a little bit longer. Uh but yeah, I mean, go for it. What do you got with Did you say you want to start with Immortal? Well, I, I want to make a comparison here because like something that I realized is like with Immortal, this is the first time that I, I came to recognize the flavor of Gillen's differences. Like, I think Gillen is a very multifaceted creator who is, uh, you know, wild, wildly different project to project. But like this was the first time I was like, mm, there's the Gillen beat. Got it. I think guys like Gaiman are a little bit more on the nose in their beat for beatness. Anybody who read Morrison's uh, Green Lantern, I mean, it's it's new X-Men with power rings, right? But um, when I read this and I, I read the ending of Gillen's Immortal, I was like, oh, now I get it. This is a Gillen thing. And regardless of the ending he has his orchestra you know he has his orchestrations that he wants to hit um and i think that's where i was like oh this can't be cohesive um and to make a a quick comparison there's a you know there's a show that i don't know most people have ever heard of it uh it was a little known show um it's called the golden girls and um the golden girls had a spinoff called empty nest and empty nest had a spinoff called Nurses. And Immortal is Golden Girls. And in so many ways, Red is Empty Nest. They feel like equally important ideas from two different gender perspectives. And then there's X-Men and it's Nurses. And I read it because it's the thing that's on at 930 um, it's the Cleveland show of animation domination. What's really wild, I... It is the Cleveland show, Kevin. It is exactly the Cleveland show starring Doctor Doom. Um, 
I I really loved Immortal when it started. Uh, I thought Gillen writing the Quiet Council made a lot of sense. Um, and I really thought he was going to Gillen, put a little Gillen spice into a very immutable uh, status quo about like the politics of running a nation with maybe some uh, hints sprinkled in that because this is such a big project couldn't really happen for like, you know, two to five years, but it immediately became the sins of sinister show, which uh, became the now mother righteous show. But uh, wait, isn't her name Rebecca? (laughs) Is it? It's something like that. Rebecca Essex? No, it's not. It's... Is it? It might be. We're gonna pretend. Uh... <laughs> it is Rebecca. Fuck! <laughs> I win! Fuck! Shut it down. Um, oh my god, I'm the singularity. This last issue, he... Uh, I, there was there was a thing going off in my head, and I was just like, I um, <laughs> great tag Rebecca with the good Essex. I'm obsessed. Thank you, Tori, and thank you, Kevo. Um, there was stuff going off in my head that I just like wasn't. Uh, we're in huge spoiler territory, by the way, people. So get out now if you. Your if milk you, is going bad. Um, he's pulling Gillen's, uh, or sorry, he's pulling Ewing's defenders stuff. This this Dominion Essex is referenced. Enigma is referenced a ton in Ewing's Defenders. He's doing a really cool thing. It just again is um, not what we came here for. It this has nothing to do with Orcus. Uh, it has nothing to do with. Uh, the mutants being kicked off the island, and it's a bummer because I don't. This is now a really interesting storyline to me, and I'm gonna uh post a really fantastic uh thread on the X's for Show Twitter. Uh, that a uh, 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 another I'm, I'm reposting uh, another user gives a really good detailing of what happened at the end of Immortal and how it is related to Defenders Beyond, how the Enigma, uh, who is this, I, I, we now understand the original Nathaniel Essex, is basically something that's more powerful than the one above all. Uh, so this is like huge, deep Marvel lore that he's doing in the midst of the biggest downfall of the X-Men to a fascist anti you know minority group that we've ever seen and i love what is happening but i'm just like i'm trying to figure out how we're dealing with moira the greatest self-loathing mutant of all time and the army of robots she has amassed to kill everyone i just wasn't really planning to stop and do deep marvel cosmological religious lore uh and so I'm just, as much as I really love it, I'm just frustrated because I'm like, right, but I do need to kind of put a period on this whole, uh, there are fascist robots everywhere convincing humans that anybody that's different than them should die. 
Let me tell you why I'm sleepy and why I shouldn't have to do homework and religious studies to enjoy my cop. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I really, I'm the guy that thinks that fiction should kind of have a homework component. <laughs> That's why I do. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, but here's where the difficulty comes in, right? <clears throat> Every now and then I'm kind of like, I have this amazing thing. I'd really like you to check out. And, um, you know, a person's like, you know, I checked that thing out. It was awful dude and then i'm like no let me tell you the reason that these three minutes make that whole movie incredible uh i've been secretly trying to get tk to give later career alanis morissette a chance for the last like five five months now uh, her last... i already I... gave her a ch- I, I continue to give her a chance you, you played one song for me today that's my that's about to say. i'm secreting it in now and then i was even like it's a song mm-hmm. i already heard it's a song i like well every time i'm like let's go see alanis in concert you're like yeah, that I'm not interested in doing. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, so, um, anyway, um, it's like that where you're like, no, I promise you, this one thing proves the whole theory. I feel like Immortal causes so much work. Immortal makes me sleepy, like, and not in a, a bad way, but it makes it very difficult to dial into it. I'm not necessarily looking for my books to hold my hand, but when so much of the line is a chore honestly a chore the quality it being so demanding means that there's no fun place like i need a fun place to go in these books and there isn't one and the best of them is exhausting in fact the best of the two of these are exhausting red is just as exhausting yeah um and you know i kind of feel the same but in the opposite direction uh i i want to do immortal i'm not interested in doing orcus uh especially because it's gone on so long and i don't think is really the serve and the threat that everybody thinks it is um I it's something that you've brought up a number of times before where it's just like those people see Dr. Stasis and they're not equally as grossed out and freaked out. They're like, that's the guy we're going to follow. Not these uh, not these mutants that like have been perfectly nice and just isolationist. But this weird uh, not pale, but like alabaster skinned freakish man. Yeah, you're not like, oh, he's has he has a disability. Judge him. You're like. He is literally not a human creature of yeah, any comparable form. <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, I don't really, I don't really believe that. And like the fact that they're like mm, the pedals, but then uh, you know they're they're like the narrative pedal, which I keep expecting to have. Like they are actually doing reality rewriting, which is happening in x-force with uh mikhail and the chronicler so i'm like why don't they have those guys in meanwhile it's just their pr wing which is great very cool but they keep talking about it like we're playing 4d chess with our narrative pedal and firestar just like takes it over in 20 minutes and she's like what if we did a bad bitch campaign um yeah okay the dlc on firestar in this game is absolutely it's nerfing other things yeah it's op as shit i i was it was fun it was just like it it further diluted this idea that in august when i was like really we're doing orcus takes over the world uh i should invest in this and again you know the writers and editors were like 
don't judge it. This is how it has to be. This is the greatest enemy the X-Men have ever had. Get into it. And then everything they wrote and put out since about Orcus is just like, I guess they have a lot of money. Yeah. What is this Jada shit that everybody's pulling all the time where they're like, don't judge it. Wait and see where it goes. And then five months later, we're like, hi. So this is where you said, wait and see where it goes. And they go, hmm. Look over there, and then they run yep. right out of the panel. Yeah, what is happening? Like, has anybody has any has anybody 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 here anybody seen this preview for New X Men in what was it November, December? Anybody Which seen one? it? That New X Men thing where they're like coming soon preview in December. Is this? Oh, right, right. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, that that we it never got. The, yeah, that it was in the AOA font. Yeah. Did they just think that we would forget because we're sleepy? And because they've inundated us with so much stuff. Um, but to not dwell too much and to pull back on something you said earlier, X Men Red was the best. I I agree on a quality level. I personally. It's so weird to say it this way, but I found it so overwrought in, in a very powerful way, in a very positive way. It just felt like it could not possibly be going on with everything else going on. Well, and this is what I'm saying about... It ruined my enjoyment. Like, yeah, I, this it is, felt like an AU. This is what I'm saying about Immortal, too. Like, these two books both suffered from this. And I will give um, them both... A little bit of credit in that they really did try and say over and over again also uh the orcus stuff is happening you know like they kept referencing an immortal we're here because we all traveled out of the krakoan gateways during the hellfire gala and orcus has taken over we need to get back because orcus has taken over and it was the same thing in x-men red where they kept saying like nobody is coming to help us Orcus has taken over. Thank you, Kevo, for for flashing this new X Men ad that we're not getting. We have not gotten any sneak peek on. This was one of our episode covers, actually. Yeah. Like we featured it because it was so like, what's up? And what's I up? I think this has turned into uh, weapons of X Men. And maybe uh, even the original X-Men. Well, I, I mean, original X-Men yeah. becomes weapons of X-Men. So I think that's what happened. But uh, this goes back to that idea of like, I'm not going to keep listening to and trusting you guys and reading your adventures and poor taste uh, interviews if you are just going to like put this stuff out and then not address it and not say anything and just paste over it. Does anybody else think if you look way too fast, it legitimately looks there like it says black anus? I missed that, but uh, oh, yeah. maybe maybe I'll get Oh, yeah. No, I see it. There yeah, it is. It's yeah. rough. It's rough. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I mean, I read suffered from the same thing. Like they kept having to say, you know, nobody's coming to help us because because Orcus happened. But we're telling this enormous story that sort of the idea that it's taking place at the same time is a lot. It's asking a lot of you. I might have really liked you know, if we cut Orcus out entirely and just did uh, the stuff that's happening in Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red, that's two huge fronts for the mutants to be fighting on. Um, that could have been enough. Like, we could have skipped Orcus entirely and still somehow kind of gotten to a fall of X if we really needed to have it. Uh, because uh, keeping in mind the original House of X and Powers of Ten is what promised us the Dominion and that that was going to be 
the ultimate problem that this era presented is that like no matter how much mutants evolve even if they lose or if they win no matter how far into the future we get you get phalanxes then dominions and there you go outside of time and space and and there are just new rules entirely so that we are coming to the fall of the house of x and the rise of the powers of 10 and we're still sort of i know we're going to talk about a bunch of this stuff but that we're still so enmeshed in like but what about moira and dr stasis and modok and the trial of scott summers i just it's it's a lot but i really did love x-men red i love bringing apocalypse back i thought this was you know a triumph triumphant story for storm it was you know that rare thing where she's not just op and unchallenged there really are moments where you're like i think she could fail obviously the character's not going to die but this could really bring her low uh, and i think too many writers are too scared to do that with storm so they kind of put her on a pedestal um i I really feel like I read Red differently. I thought Red was the book where everybody was so OP. Um, There's definitely that aspect of it, sure. But when everybody is, it kind of levels the playing field. But for me, it really didn't. Like, it felt like these people were dealing... Like, here's my problem. If this is going on in Red, Orcus is not a problem. Yeah, I am, yes, that I Red, agree with. Orcus cannot be a problem. Sinister would have been caught. If you put Sinister in a room with any Arakan mutant... This would have been because they would have been like, I smell that you're evil. We have to stop you. And it would have yeah. been done in an instant when you so disproportionately power things like and that has been my negative statement about Red this whole time. And that's why I said it's so much about the production engine, not just about the writers or even the editors. It's about the engine itself. This book is so beautiful and so powerful and so magnificent. But. It's sort of the same thing that Grant Morrison's new X-Men did to every silly story coming out in Unlimited at the time. It This just makes, like, you know, Phalong feel illegitimate. And I, I wish, I agree, I wish that it had actually been used as a vehicle to do that. Um, I, I might have loved if we, like, paused this story... And if they really felt for whatever reason Orcus needs to happen, maybe this is like we get to where we are now and that's when the Genesis War starts and everybody goes, oh, Orcus uh, doesn't like Orcus gets caught in the crossfire and just is obliterated in two seconds because compared to the, you know, the army of mutants and the armies of Amanth fighting, Orcus actually isn't that special. And I, you know, so we're we're speaking to the same idea. Like, I really, I like this stuff better. I don't super care for Orcus. Uh, and so putting this in that same realm, it both leads my eye away from wh what you're telling me is the big event. But then also it shows me, like, we also could have skipped this main event. You know, we could have skipped Orcus entirely. Uh, and then, go ahead. Well, just because there's so many evil robots. Yeah. Evil yeah. robots make me sleepy. I love evil robots, but I feel like we, this is, uh, we've, we've lost, we're really doing, um, we were promised at the end of Inferno, evil robots. What we've gotten since is a cyborg woman and 
a bunch of humans and other cyborgs puppeting the robots. But what Inferno promised us was the machines are all thinking and hate humanity as much as they hate mutants. The machines are, would, are a third sect that would like to take over. And what we've done since then is the machines uh, have no autonomy and are just puppets of humans. And we will not be talking about any kind of machine ascendancy. And Ali, yes, uh, they did do a very poor job of making Orcus interesting uh, and threatening beyond just being violent bigots. Uh, violent bigots are great. X-Men should always have violent bigots around to, you know, be villains. They should be in unlimited stories. They should be occasional threats. They should be who Generation X faces. But this just never convinced me that they were worth this much time and effort. Moira just feels now like any random faceless bad guy introduced yeah. for this run she has less interest and immortal basically started saying on. that they basically you know charles and uh sinister have a conversation that leads me to believe that we're gonna get a moira back that is a legit whether she's good or evil a a, a flesh moira that is more legit and this robot will just kind of have been this obnoxious echo that was so over the top and just kind of plagued our favorite books for plot purposes uh and by the way in the face of all this we've really not talked about x-men at all which has just been a series of vignettes each less compelling because these are the most uh related to the orcus storylines uh, but they're all just everybody's in the sewers and they got to go on a mission. And it got so uninspiring that literally the entire story of issue 29 is in this cover. Everything you need to know is right in this image here. And you do not need to read it because you know that if you know that if the X-Men were fully going to war with Doctor Doom and that was a long term story you wouldn't be looking at one X-Men cover, you would be looking at an event. So you know that because you're just looking at one cover, this ends with a Doctor Doom being like, well, I'll see you if you frustrate me. And we just get them fighting these Latvarian mutants one time and then it's all fine. Uh, and most of the storylines from issue 24, 25, 25 to 29 are exactly that. It's one issue. Kitty Pride goes on a stealth mission. Is it relevant? Kind of. Uh, she's very upset, which I get, uh, but that's not playing out really much anywhere. There's not much story to be had there. Uh, go look at each of the covers, glance at the issue, and you take everything away from it that you really need to. All right, we ready to move on to the next stuff? Yeah, so now we've got the, <laughs> the Percy Corner. Uh... Uh, <laughs> I love Ben Percy so much. I really do. I, um, I think his Ghost Rider is one of the best horror books of the past 10, maybe 20 years, maybe longer than that, maybe best of all time. Uh, I loved his X-Force to start. I love a lot about his X-Force. Um, I don't know anything about this man, how he behaves, how he acts, what he's treated like, who speaks to him, and how they speak to him. But this does a lot of times read to somebody who has to make up what's happening on his own time. Like, I don't want to do Fall of X. I'm going to do my own stuff. 
And, you know, I think that's even part of why I feel so much like these books are completely unrelated. They sort of sit off in their own universe and do their own thing. They do. And like, you know, he, he did the thing that Ewing and Gillen were doing, which was to put a ton of references in. So this once uh, the fall of X kicks off, Wolverine goes just on a bunch of buddy missions. Ghost Rider, Hulk, Captain America, Spider-Man. And he keeps saying that they have a lot to do with Krakoa. Uh, and because, because the Hellfire Gala happened and Orcus took over, he's like, I'm going to avenge them. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. Uh, also fuck beast. Um, but this is just a chance for Percy to write Wolverine interacting with Ghost Rider, Hulk, Captain America and Spider-Man. And they're, they're fun. They're very fun. Uh, I think he writes a great buddy Wolverine, Spider-Man, the Ghost Rider one. Ghost Rider one is kind of the most offensive because they put it on the Fall of X list. Like this uh, Weapons of Vengeance was really important to Fall of X. And I still don't know what happened or why it was important. Because it wasn't, right? Like, right? It wasn't important. I mean, I can't tell because comics used to need time for things to mean something like you were supposed to have time to read it and buy it and then respond yeah i don't think it's gonna have anything to do with anything but uh you know it was well written um meanwhile x-force we did uh a we we i give percy credit for this one too we resolved the mikhail rasputin story i sort of hate how we did it and i don't blame percy for that because i feel as though editorial did not push for that story to become part of the orcus story uh in the same way that like it was a minor thing but we saw horticulture who were a consistent early krakoan villain these old ladies that are really obsessed with plants we saw that we saw them work with orcus and we saw that they are a minor part of it and horticulture stories were a big part of early ex uh, early Krakoa stuff, as were Russian mutant relations being really bad. And so my expectation was eventually, basically that Mikhail would cut a deal with Orcus of some kind. Um, and instead, and again, this, this was my kind of... Uh, Mikhail has the chronicler who literally writes reality. And so the idea that Orcus has a narrative pedal uh, and doesn't employ or have any reference to the mutant that canonically on page does narrative as his mutant power uh, just seemed like a really big missed opportunity. And in the end, they resolved, thankfully, this enormous gaping plot hole, which was Mikhail Rasputin and what he was doing to Colossus. But it was all insular in its own world, having nothing to do with Orcus or the fall of X or the lack of Krakoa. And then in this issue, issue 47, X-Force is just like, we are now also in the game. We are doing Krakoa. Too. We're doing fall of x2 we're in for for revenge uh and there were some beautiful moments because it also juxtaposed with the end of the alpha flight mini but it just was one issue at the end of five months of writing about a cool thing that just had nothing to do with this thing they told us is the most important thing happening to the x-men what do i do with that 
Well, and I think part of the problem is that we spent 47 issues in this X-Force story that just kind of feels like it went nowhere. And so much of it borrowed into Wolverine and back and forth yeah. that uh, it just feels like for it to have all gone nowhere was uh, just kind of a big letdown. And, I, you know, this is one that I can still say we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical and, and very dubious, but this is a great X-Force team. It's a really good X-Force model. Um, this could, all of these characters could come out of it being like, I am, you know, I'm the Laura that was on X-Force. I'm the Colossus that was on X-Force. I'm the Sage that was on X-Force. I'm the Quentin that was on X-Force. Uh, and in that way, if I look at all these characters in two years and say, man, Percy really defined how each of these characters and or how the X-Force team functions for years to come. He set the standard. That'll give me something. It won't solve all of my issues, but that'll be something. It's more that I suspect that when From the Ashes hits, Laura's going to be like, miraculously, I suddenly like skirts. Sage is going to be like, I don't even use the internet. Colossus is going to be like, Mikhail who? And we'll never talk again about this period in time where they were a very cohesive ops unit with a structure and problems and, you know, everybody having kind of submissions within the thing. Uh, and that's when I'll really be able to put my stamp on it and be like, this was this went nowhere. But I will say I did love this issue 47. I loved the moment uh, with Wolverine and his son. Uh, I did did shed a couple tears in that in that moment. Nico, uh, what do you think? Well, I was gonna say something about uh, a little while. I just want to you know comment on you know with part of the thing in X Force being this continuous idea that these characters are all in this very dark place. Uh, one of the things is it is a misery book, and so no character is in a a, a warm place even when they pull through something, they're pulling through something after something kind of traumatic. And it's a, a balance to something that happened here. I think that's kind of what happens when you are so set on designing a narrative in spite of everything going on around it. It's the same problem as Red. It's just, we look at Storm's triumphs in Red. I don't think too many people are going to be like, I have to upkeep uh, Birdo's uh, Red status. I don't think that's going to be a huge, uh, you know, Beto, sorry, after so many years, um, too many people are going to be, you know, so worried about Sunspot. I think it's just going to be Storm. And I think likewise with X-Force, people are going to pick one person from this to latch on to. But for me, the bigger problem is we spent, uh, I mean, I spent 30 years hearing people say, but a Mikhail story would be incredible. And then here was the 50 issue one. And it wasn't um, because I can blink reality different with my brain is a very difficult ongoing narrative villain. I sort of sit on the fence on that one. I do think it was a good story. I my thing is blaming editorial. I just I don't think it slotted in anywhere. Uh, I thought it had the good. I thought it had good bones of a story. I just think it never, never I'm, took off. I'm just not sure what the story was. It was yeah. Colossus. I mean, like, seriously though, it was Mikhail like, controls Colossus to win That's yeah i mean and this is why why i was kind of like th they really needed to um work with orcas like they, they we needed to have russia work with orcas because it started as the idea was russia 
will not recognize Krakoa. Russia, like Latveria, we're just discovering now in issue 29 of X-Men, Russia does its own thing with its mutants and uses them in its own way and wants, you know, it very much mirrored sort of Cold War ideas of how uh, a nation and Russia would function. But then, yeah, it really, what is their ultimate goal? Uh, you know, Mikhail had the Cerebro Sword at one point. What were they doing? We'll never know. Uh, and it would have been nice if the goal was like, we're setting up a mutant army that we can deploy at any time. You know, we're setting up a new Red Room and it's all mutants. Anything like that. And it's, there's like a hint that there could be an end goal, but we never, we never see anything. And that does really kill it. All right, on to our next bit. Yeah, on to last and uh, kind of least. Uh, these these little side uh, ongoings that were included in uh, the fall of X. Ghost Rider we talked about. I mean, I still love this book as an ongoing, but I don't know what it has to do with the fall of X. No. Uh, and then, you know... Invincible Iron Man, uh, I cool story, I guess. One too many, definitely. Uh, and also, this is the one uh, that didn't actually end. Uh, because the big thing that it's promising us, the Mysterium Iron Man suit, uh, we don't get in 13. Um, one of the things I was actually most impressed by, by Fall of X, is the fact that we wrapped everything up before December 31st. 2023 uh all of the all of the minis ended all of the ongoings that were going to end ended all of the ongoings that stayed had final arc stories except for iron man uh which on top of not having a final arc story or anything didn't pay off its fall of x biggest storyline no i wonder how much longer uh duggan will be on yeah, me too. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know what we even have solicits for at this point, but this is fun. He and Emma are fun together. Uh, Tori asks, I'm only peripherally interested in Iron Man, so are these two kids still fake married? They are still fake married. Uh, I really do appreciate that it has stayed pretty fake. Uh, they seem to function very well as two rich idiots uh, who don't do very well being poor idiots. Um, and, you know, fun team-up potential. I think the Mysterium armor will be very cool, but I never asked for this book. I never needed this book. Uh, I... it's It's been fine. I don't have huge critiques for it, but I also don't have huge love for it. Uh, this summer, I did a project where I read literally every issue of every Iron Man book from the... Yes, you sure did the year 2023 and uh you know i think one of the things that i found really complicated about reading that much iron man is that iron man is a character that you just sort of graft current science onto at any given time yeah. and this was not that title in so many ways duggan's iron man is about sort of relaying the furtherance of so much of duggan's progressive storytelling in the and like i mean his own progression yeah. uh, storytelling in the marvel universe into iron man we saw it a lot with his deadpool we see it uh throughout his emma in marauders but you know 
this point in Iron Man, this book is a vehicle, sort of like Tony's suit, more than it really is kind of telling a story. Yeah, I'm really interested to see. I'm not really interested to see, but I am interested to see where it goes insofar as if we do uh, From the Ashes and Emma just goes back to the mansion or whatever is happening, is Tony keeping the Mysterium suit? And is that a new status quo for him? Uh, and what would that be like? Would Duggan keep writing it? Those will be questions. Uh, I don't know how much I care about the answers. <laughs> and with that, I think that is all of our ongoings. Wow. All right. What on to next? Now we got the minis. We got the many, many minis. And I believe uh, we start off with the solos. What'd you think? I mean, I think it's a really uneven bag. I think they all kind of do different things. Um, you know, it's really about the fact that each one of these is trying to play out a different story. Um, the gene one being ultimately really important is a really complicated thing to piece together with the bigger picture. Um, you know, that uncanny Spider-Man is meant to be an adjacent spider title that, only Astonishing Iceman is meant to be the regular X book. That Ms. Marvel is meant to be kind of the New Mutants-ish book. It's a really interesting statement on the State of X solo titles. Yeah. Um, I. It's sort of... Uh, I almost kind of feel bad. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of shit talking for Iceman as a character. And then for this book... Uh, and by a lot of, I mean, just in my own head, uh, like that was really the book for me that I was just like, you know, the gene book dealt with these ongoing questions about her identity and the power that she holds, uh, and what, sh who she is, what she's trying to do. And these are questions that Jean is always asking. And I think she often gets great writers to write for her and write about her uh and the fact that this is 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 working with immortal as well and will go into x-men forever uh and it's probably looking like we're doing a new phoenix story at some point in the future that's a really big moment for her um the the uncanny spider-man story you know kurt getting a moment unlike any other which we'll talk about in the future the bobby story you know, I feel like we're always asking the same things about Bobby. Uh, and there's no... It's always just like, oh, am I always going to be the goofball? Nope, I'm actually super... Like, we just keep repeating the same loop where he's like, I'm not actually just a goofball. I'm actually the most powerful... I'm in the 16 most powerful mutants and I'm insanely powerful. Can I use my powers? If it's plot convenient, sure. But if it's plot interesting to have me not be able to use them, that's what we're going with today. Uh, also, I'm gay now. <laughs> and I just, we've done a few of these in, uh, you know, we've done them as storylines and ongoings. And I don't know that I needed a mini for it. I It's great that queer men are writing a queer man uh at this point i'm much more interested in seeing women and women of color write women and women of color in the marvel universe so this was just kind of 
this ended the exact same way that every single Iceman story where he goes, who am I? What am I for? What is my purpose? Am I just some dumb himbo that makes jokes? No, I'm actually really powerful. I beat the guy. I survived. I'm still your friend, the Iceman. Uh, except now he kind of uh, fucks whoever he wants, and so does his boyfriend, which is, I guess, sex positive. <laughs> you know, I just don't think that he is funny. Yeah, I don't. I think also don't he think he's funny. <laughs> I don't think that he quips. I don't think that he tells jokes. I think yeah. when he does, it's choreographed into the scene. Yeah. And one of the things is like a funny character is funny. Yes. Like when Spider Man tells a joke. There is then like internal monologue of Spider-Man's that has jokes in it. Yeah. In his life, people yeah. are like, you're funny, Peter. That's the actually that is the best example right there. Spider-Man's inner monologue is funny. And like, again, even Duggan wrote some funny Spider-Man in that Wolverine. Spider-Man is funny. That is the perfect example. Bobby's inner monologue. Never funny. You are absolutely right. So, you know, when they try to tell us how funny Bobby is or that he's, you know, concerned that he's seen as a goofball, he was never even a goofball. Like, I reread those issues of X-Men not too long ago. And by those issues, I mean the Stan Lee issues and the X-Men first class issues. He's actually not funny. He's just 14. So he's just younger. You know, I don't know. I think um, Bobby is a character who would be best served. I think there isn't a character among the uh, original five that wouldn't be best served by being the one who gets replaced by yeah. uh, the original X-Man. But, uh, you know. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I just, I find myself very ambivalent uh, and also very aware that he's just probably not going anywhere, uh, which is, which is fine. Uh, I I hope there's that one person out there that's like, I've got the Bobby story. Uh, you know, I think Orlando Fox think it's their shared Steve brain. I just, oh man, it's, I, I don't even remember which of them. It's Orlando, isn't it? Uh, I, I think this is Fox. Oh God, hold on. I have to look it up. Just zoom in on the cover real quick, Kevo. Which one, Iceman? Iceman. Orlando. This one's Orlando, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this, this ain't it for me, dog. Uh, but Uncanny Spider-Man was pretty it for me. I really liked it. But at the same time, why did Blue come out during this? that was weird that's an, there we go that's another one of these editorial decisions where they're like you just need to pick up the additional issue that we have folded in here that you pay for uh and trust us when we say this is a good idea that we've had i was it an out for people that were like i'm never going to read this but really needed the information that was in it I don't know. And I think, um, I don't, I also think blue was such a silly thing to be controversial. Um, like there are things that we just kind of accept as canon. And even if they're not fandom wins and by fandom wins, I mean, one day everyone will just accept that that is canon period. 
This is how DC got away. I have done so much fucking research for this Green Lantern project I keep mentioning. Um, you know, my... Okay, point that I need to make. Has anybody ever noticed how incredibly similar Sinestro and Wolverine dress? Yeah. It's all I can think about. Sinestro would look right at home on a very gay version of Alpha Flight. Anyway, um, one of the things that I've learned is how much DC utilized... Uh, the ability to ask fans to fill in the gaps. And I think that in so many ways, fandom had filled in enough of the gaps on this story that I wish this had been treated as confirmation, not a revelation, because it's treated as a revelation to both Nightcrawler and the audience. Yeah. And if it had been treated as the story the audience has always demanded. Yeah. And if you didn't demand this, that's not our problem because it's what's happening. Live yeah. with it. Um, I, I don't know. Blue blue should have been celebrated much harder. And it yeah. bothers me that it wasn't. I think it should have been the Uncanny Spider-Man annual. But then I understand how that demotes it. Uh, but I don't know. Peter Parker and MJ got married in an annual rogue uh took carol danvers powers in an annual my birthday is technically an annual they could have just made it three of those things are pretty special they could have just made it the x-men annual yeah so um i want to answer a comment real quick from david rathole.ca i'm only able to be half year nightcrawler spider-man a thing that apparently happened as i answered to him Marvel just loves a crossover and a fusion. Things like this happen a lot, even if they're only temporary. Am I right? And this is, yeah, you are right. And this is one of the ones they, they spend enough time being like, hey, this is weird, but we are doing, like, in issue, Kurt is like, thank you for letting me just pretend to be Spider-Man. Uh, and it is very clearly part of his trauma response to stuff that happened in way of X or Legion of X legions of X, uh, all of which I, this to me, this was one of the more okay ones, uh, mostly because Kurt doesn't have the same problem that Spider-Man has. We do often with Kurt do faith stuff, but he doesn't keep going. I'm just a Catholic that can't figure out how to do the rosary and be a mutant. Like it has broadened into, uh, I'm trying to figure out my faith. How do you be incredibly horny all the time and be a man of God? How do you make a new religion? What do you got? Um, Tori's question is really fair. Um, it's Xavier's dream had to die. Um, yes. That's which of Kurt's uncles had to die for him yeah. to get this suit. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I need to say is that this is as close to a Portman 2 as you can get. Um, this is if somebody said to you, I need um, a very opinionated coming of age story. And of course, you would say Judge Judy Bloom. Like, this is the before and after that Pat and Vanna have promised us for 28 years. Mm-hmm. He's a night wall crawler, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, his powers are a stick to walls and I am fundies, yeah. And, you know, Peter Parker's whole thing is, I probably can't do a German accent. Let me try. Ja, is it funny? Did I do good? Oh, well, anyway, I've webbed you. Like, they really are the same. This is a guy who should worry that no one takes him seriously because he's such a goofball. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and he has yeah. such a horrible experience at the end, you know, at pre Hellfire Gala and after the Hellfire Gala, that he just goes and tries to be Spider Man for a little bit. He just goes and tries to help a, a general area out, you know, neighborhood in New York. Uh, and I think that's fun. I think that's cool. Um, it's all the the Silver Sable stuff was a little weird. Um, you know what? Cy Spurrier has been writing comics for like 20 something years. Um, so when people ask me, you know, what is your silly? You would do it in a heartbeat. Oh, MC2, you know, um, you know, so I have to wonder. Cy Spurrier, were you part of that Silver Sable and the Funky Bunch or whatever good vibration it He's was? He's just like, I've always wanted to make sure she gets laid by by Kurt. Maybe. And you know what? That's fine. Um, the fact that he managed to fold that into a story that canonically confirms that Mystique can shapeshift testes, functional testes into her uh, situation and make a baby. Uh, that dynamite authoring there. Uh, and I think, you know, your point that you made at the start is the biggest one, which is like, this was not uh, a huge reveal. This was really great confirmation. Uh, this Claremont has said that this was a an avenue, a very potential avenue, if not the, the definite intention. Uh, it is something that people have gone with for a really long time. I think, I think, the idea of playing with, hey, we're not giving you a reveal, we're giving you confirmation, is actually one of the more interesting ways that Marvel publication, editorial, and marketing could get a thing on their hands that can galvanize the fan base in a particular way. Especially if it's something that fandom pushed for. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, if we've been around talking about this, rather than saying, like, hey, we just had an idea which is a shitty way to do it because we all go, no, you did not just have an idea. Chris Claremont had an idea 50 years ago. Um, all you have to say is like, hey, come join us for the thing you've been waiting for. That's come so much more inviting. Us. Yeah. Um, speaking of people I'd get gay with, and I mean that very silly, um, I just want to touch on one thing about the Jean Grey mini. Oh, please. did and didn't work for me in yeah. every way. When you bring in a legacy author, um, one of the things that you bring in is the inability not to feel a vibe. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, first of all, both Simonsons, giants of industry. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I feel when I'm reading a Louise Simonson book is I'm reading somebody who's never really given up on internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of internal language, the amount of, and this is the moment that I realized, like I am all down for Angela Chase to narrate. And just like everything. that. Yeah. Yes. And it's, my Phoenix force was holding me back. Yes. 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 This is Jean Grey falls walking down the runway and Margaret Cho is like, you go bitch. Like it is that. Oh, Kevin, maybe we just watched the first season of sex in the city of the night. <laughs> I don't remember that. I only went to drop dead diva for some reason. Oh no, she falls, and Margaret Cho is really into it. That, is that that's not the first season though? Is it? No, it's third season. But, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. You. That's. I mean, you make a fantastic point. Like, because the thing is, like, Simonson acquits herself better than a lot of her ilk and generation. Yes. Uh. Because some of those people 
I think in the scripts, they probably still write in Thought Bubble, which we don't really do Thought Bubbles that much anymore. There is a ton of inner monologue that used to be in Thought Bubbles that now just goes in narratives in narrative uh, boxes. Um, Simonston, Simonston still writes a little bit like it is in a thought bubble more so than some younger people in the industry some of whom have literally never read a comic that has long thought you know that has long claremontian thought bubbles so she's a little more old school and i would say there are a lot of times where i wouldn't want to see that this is the one where i'm like you know okay this was this was good this was uh claremont keeps getting they are technically in continuity but they cannot affect present day continuity flashback stories we give them to uh you know liefelds or their au's um you know fabian niciate what well, i'm so sorry i just I, I didn't mean to react over you i get yes as a gene oh, fan. Yeah, yeah. As Ali Galactic. Galactic, as a gene stand, should I read this? Yes, absolutely you should. Um, this is an important book. And it's it's actually Ali, it's really important for the future of the plot. Um the word so you've got this, um, you've got what's happening at the end of Immortal X-Men, then you've got X-Men Forever coming out, which I think uh is going to be Gene's probably reunification with the Phoenix Force. And I think that is going to have a lot to do with these powers outside of time and space that afflict the X-Men. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was, you know, seeing somebody like Louis Simonson not get the uh, Claremont treatment of like, okay, you can write a Gambit story, but it takes place in 1991 and nothing can happen that affects who Gambit is today. Seeing her get this kind of really massive uh, retrospective, but retrospective that's really important to today's storytelling was cool. So I'm going to be brave yet controversial. I love when you get brave yet controversial. So Jean Grey as a gay man was my entrance point into the X-Men. Um, but you know, one of the things that winds up happening is because of that, I'm so attached to the people that are very attached to Jean Grey's work. So something that I've been realizing in the last couple of years is that far too many of these legacy stories have gone to Chris Claremont. And one of the things that X-Men Legends allowed for was so many of these classic writers to see their stories included in modern residual contracts. Now, what would have been a lot more special was if each one of those tied into a classic story that could have then been interpreted like or interpolated into the trade. So, like, if, you know, Wheezy did two brilliant issues in X-Men Legends that got added to a Fall of the Mutants standard version of the trade so that she was receiving that sort of modern income, because I don't think a lot of people are going out and buying X-Men Legends trades. Like, I just don't think that's uh, that's what that was the name of the book, right? Legends. Yeah. OK, so one of the things that I think ultimately uh, that has pointed this out to me, and it's so stupid, and you have to go on a 20-second journey with me. I'll promise I'll keep it short. Uh, one of the most stable influences in my entire life has been The Price is Right. Uh, I was a kid who had to be homeschooled because of some medical stuff, so uh, I watched Price is Right every single day in high school and middle school. That was my shit. And uh, 
one of the things is that means I am very attached to this very dumb game. And uh, it, we watch it regularly. We have a Paramount Plus subscription so that I can watch it every day with Kevo and Jonah and TK when he's here. And, uh, you know, well, uh, and so your parents can watch old people stuff. But yes, oh, for yeah, for us, it's for prices, right? And, uh, you know, if uh, Rich, if you're watching because he's been watching, hey, it's super cool. Right. Um, you know, I was uh, telling him about how it's something I would love for him to watch with us sometime because I have a very unique reaction to it. I so dumb, but this season they went so out of their way to make sure that no model seemed like the junior baby. There's six regular models, uh, four women and two men, and everybody received really fair treatment in a way that made me feel like nobody here is the princess. I think this Jean Grey mini proved that we have passed the age of Chris Claremont is the princess. Yeah. That's I, such an extended Plinko style. Metaphor. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. Um, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that. Uh, oh, real quick. Ali says, I get very scared of Jean focused stories because so many writers have done her so dirty. Yes. Uh, my immediate fear, um, Uh, Ali, I'm really glad you snagged all four. I really, this is Louise Simonson. This is one of the. And if you don't like it, I'll get a PO box just like Bendis, and you can return it just like Disassembled. Evidently, no one did. Uh, so they this, say. this was good, and I don't want to say like it's time for Simonson to get the princess treatment, uh, but it is. Um, and if nothing else, I'm happy to see, especially Simonson and Nascenti. If 2024 is not the year of Nascenti, I give up. Come on. Like, give it to us. I mean, and we're going to get to it in a second exactly who I think should be part of that year. But last, we have to first do uh, Miss Marvel, the new mutant. Uh, perfectly fine. Sort of boring. No, I'm going to challenge. What? Actually, this is more exciting than most first outings from indie legends who come on over. Um... I love the strange talent of Luther Strode, but I think it took Trad Moore quite a while to figure out how to be Trad Moore at Marvel. Iman Vellani, I don't know if it's just that she's so fucking cool. She goes and sees Spam a lot sitting next to Brie Larson or something, but she came to this book and said, I'm going to understand comics. I'm going to be taught by the greatest people I can get my hands on. What I got here was a better first attempt by a recognizably patternable voice. This sounds more like Iman Vellani's Twitter and interviews than it does like Ms. Marvel from the TV show by a long shot. I really would trade a number of up and coming writers for Iman Vellani to have made enough money on Ms. Marvel, the TV show to retire from acting. And, and uh, I think she could, legitimate this book makes me think she could run an avengers title i don't know i completely title but definitely i completely agree with all of that the editorial mandate was what really made this to me uh because it really felt like somebody was saying she can do anything you want in this box that is very small all right up to the end where she has this moment with emma where they remind you, by the way, we still don't know what your mutation is and we're not telling you and you're not even getting a hint. Uh, here is the fashion version of the bangle because we're not doing the, the bangle story uh, that we did in the MCU in this, which I thought was a, but here a, you go. A, 
Yeah, literally, you can see it. I just, that was the only thing. I, I, I really, I agree with everything you're saying. She's a fantastic writer. I'm so glad she's getting another one. I think um, I would, you, Avengers, great. I would really like to see her write the team of young mutants that uh, Miss Marvel goes on after we do what? I'm sorry. You said something perfect. So Marvel would never do it. And it made me laugh uncontrollably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, we're getting Ms. Marvel the Mutant Menace next, also written by Mondalani. When that's done, we'll have started rolling into this From the Ashes thing. If they were to do a new mutant series or a Generation X or even, you know, an All Mutants Champions, uh, having Iman Vellani write it, I think would be perfect. Yeah, right? With Greg uh, Bach. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, um, can we just give him his flowers for 10 seconds? I, I I love that man more than almost any other writer in comics. I mean, he's one I of, think, yeah, he's a Claremont. He's one of very few that I've actually gotten to meet and speak to in a context where I could, you know, because I don't really like to meet creators at conventions. Uh, and this, this happened to be, he was a friend of a teacher of mine, so he came into one of our classes. And it was not a class about comic books, so I was the only person that read comics. Uh, and you know, I, I just got to speak to him about how phenomenal his writing is and one of the greatest comic moments of my life. So anyway, uh, I think that would be such an amazing collaboration. Uh, I would love to see Greg Pak on more mutant stuff always. Um, Didn't I would he really just write, uh, original X-Men. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I want to see him on more. Um, oh, where's that Christos Gage? It was Gage on that, but he Greg Pak has a mutant thing coming up, or just had one. He just had one, yeah. Aura has one coming up, absolutely. Um, but I just uh, uh, no, yeah, because you brought up champions. So yeah. uh, you know, one of the things that I think that by bringing up champions, you're introducing is Ms. Marvel is a pivotal moment in the Marvel universe, no matter what point in time we're talking about. She represented a moment where suddenly the minority characters were no longer outliers. As much as I love early Miles Morales, he was always treated as that ultimate universe idea that could never take hold in the Marvel universe. Ms. Marvel was a transformative moment for the Marvel universe that allowed us to see that perhaps a character like Ms. Marvel has a name that is so recognizable no matter what, people are going to give it a chance. Now, you, of course, you have to earn that chance. And with a character like Kamala, we really saw that come true. I think by putting her here in the X-Men and, you know, by referencing uh, the champions, I kind of think, you know, Kamala's Law, we're looking at three iterations of what it means to be a young person in the Marvel Universe. I think she is destined to sort of like take on that mantle of female young spider-man you know i don't think that there is anyone who matches spider-man as the iconographic young marvel female other than maybe Jean. now of course she's no longer young but i think ms marvel has all of the trappings it would take to be the new marvel girl and uh i i really would love to see that come for iman Vellani's writing in particular um, that idea, I love an insane amount. The idea of her taking on the Marvel Girl title, uh, that would be fascinating. And just now that she's a mutant and she has this special secret mutation, I wonder if her special secret mutation is going to... I think that Marvel is building toward a big reset. I think 
everything is coming toward a big reset. And I think it's going to be new 52 style. I think we're going to be looking at a retelling of classic stories within the next 10 years to set up for a refreshed MCU that this can connect to. Now, in addition to that, I think that that's why we're starting to see the payoff of some of the greatest stories ever told and then placeholder stories that follow. I think seeing something like um, Hulk, uh, Immortal Hulk, I was like, what was it called? Hulk goes to hell right now. Immortal Hulk told us that you can go places that a character just kind of can't recover from, but the audience is willing to not recover for that good a story. I think that might have been what we saw with Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil. I think even Krakoa, to an extent, plays that same gambit. Now, when the universe needs to reset, we're going to need some sort of death in the family meets infinite crisis thing that's going to sell the flashpoint that they're building toward. And I think Ms. Marvel and Miles Morales are being set up as two figures that are going to shepherd in the new age of the Marvel Universe. And I think by positioning her as an Avenger, a champion, a solo hero, and now an X-Man... We are literally seeing her represent the entirety of the Marvel brand with her own name as well as her character placement. Genius interpretation. Uh, I'm leaving it there because I think that's a perfect place to stop. Uh, or also, not I'm stop, Vlani, stop. I love you. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Vlani, We love the hell out of you. Uh, on to the mini team stories. Uh, I also, I feel like I'm missing one. Um, this was a page of disappointment. Yo. I wanted well, to give most of these books an A, and at best I could give most of them a uh, an A minus. Um, at best, and that's if there was nothing else wrong with them. The premises max out at an A minus. Um, I think I'm giving Children of the Vault my highest vote at a B plus. Yeah. yeah, and I think everything else, the max you can see is a C. Um. I Children of Alt for me it was also the best. Although again, this is a conflict with the Children of the Vault is bigger than a conflict with Orcus. Children of the Vault should have just been like, oh, we took over Orcus. Uh we did it 20 years ago in our time, which was half a second ago for you guys. We ate um, them, it was delicious. Yeah, I just the Children of the Vault are such a you know, it's such a looming threat that we only get these slices of because they can only really exist in our world for slices or it doesn't make sense um, to have this be just Cable and Bishop. I don't know. I, I would rather the book been called Cable and Bishop and feature a couple of Children of the Vaults than to have it be an all out Children of the Vault are also taking over the world story that can't continue after this four issue mini because we have to go back to orcus i'm sorry hold on real quick oppressive white guilt for a moment please i wonder if the problem is while he is one of the most recognizably lovable x-men of all time truly both by visual and by character identity i wonder if the problem is that there is concern that bishop's name after the lackluster response to bishop war college cannot sell a book the same way cable can and if you call the book cable it's clearly problematic when they're equal you know leads so in place of calling it cable and bishop you just give it another name yeah very possibly i just uh you know 
I think you and I are two people that feel very strongly, positively about Children of the Vault. Uh, and you're being much more reasonable than I'm being, but I just sort of felt like this was not not uh, story wise, just in terms of how it fits into the meta plot. This was a bit of a disservice to the Children of the Vault. Uh, Cable and Bishop, very cool here. I give Camp a lot of credit for not going too hard on the angst of how much they must hate each other based on all that they've done to each other. And this just being kind of a workplace afternoon for them. Uh, two guys that just really like guns. There's a a soldier's camaraderie. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. That I think, um, you know, we all kind of like understand how to have the same job as someone else. Uh, if somebody else, even if you don't like them, they're like... I have been doing this dumb show. All right, suspenders coming down. I have been doing this dumb oh. show for a trillion years. Um, and by dumb show in a trillion years, I mean this show I love more than anything. And I've been doing, you know, some form of it for five, six years. And I have been on multiple special guest spot, uh, multi-host episodes where I have had to look at people whose shows just make me mad. <laughs> like um, The minute you get on camera with them, their opinions don't make you mad. It's, you're with another person who does exactly what you do and you just respect it. Yeah, I hear that. Um, Alpha Flight was really cool to see. And I actually thought this of basically anything of the Fall of X was the most Fall of X story, uh, except for the fact that their Orcus uh, branch is Department H rather than like really any official Orcus branch. And what was with the art inconsistencies? They it didn't even have like a crazy art team, but it felt very much like perhaps this team was asked to operate under a very tight, tight yeah. time budget. Uh, and it did not befit the quality that this story, I mean, this storytelling team was really trying to give us something special. Yeah. This was, I, yeah, yeah you nailed it. Um, I, I, and I do wonder, it's one of those things where it's like, nobody is asking for an Alpha Flight book, so why did you pressure anybody to make it? Uh, and, uh, you know, possibly... Work. Yeah, yeah, true. Are, you know, anytime you're wondering why a book changes name, anytime you're wondering, oh, why did Thor become Journey into Mystery? Right. Why did they randomly do an Alpha Flight one shot? If they don't do something to maintain the trademark, they legally have to uh, like file to keep it under like complicated ways, and nobody wants to sit with an injunction. Yeah. So instead, they just do a quick mini, they do a quick one shot, and uh, even if it has nothing to do with the existing title, sometimes that's how you wind up with like Squadron Supremes that don't feature any of the Supremes, Mary right. Wilson or otherwise. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, this was uh, this to me was a really fun book. Uh, you know, I think uh, I say nobody was asking for an Alpha Flight book, uh, but we'd all love a new Gamma Flight book, as Ali Galactic points out. I think people really did want to see what was going on with these characters. Uh, and you know, to we'd gotten a bunch of the Bobier twins on Krakoa. Uh, the fact that uh, one of them is now really connected to Akahiro, who I think is is having a really big heyday. This was just a really good time for a bunch of characters to show up. It was great to see. Uh, you know, they did the great fake out of a bunch of Alpha Flight seems like they're working for Department H, but mm. then they're secretly that mm. was really what mm. you didn't like it. Great fake out, no fake oh, fun out, fake out. Mm, 
Oh, come on. Perfunctory Don't... fake out. Yeah. Um, also, I want to rewrite Mariah Carey's hero to be Akihiro, bisexual, claw slut. And I think it absolutely works in every way. That's and like I how think- I do um, All Eyes on Me in the Center of the Ring like Andy Circus. I am <laughs> legally required to tell you that that is excellent, sir. I am I am under the legal obligation to tell you. Um, it's like uh, anybody who knows Cardcaptor Sakura. Uh, we feel that uh, the ending it sounds of one of the songs it sounds like she's saying Maya Rudolph. So we all always shout Maya Rudolph. Like loving you is easy because you're beautiful. Uh man, you know. The number of people that don't realize that that is Minnie Ripperton's daughter. Yeah, I know. That is why every time she sings on any variety show, I'm like, guys, guys, this everybody, is shut up and listen, child. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway, uh, the other thing I want to say about this is two books that we literally clawed for you and yes. I in particular. Yep. We wanted Dark X-Men and Realm of X more than almost any two people. Yep. We've uh, had the pleasure of telling Torn Grunbuck to her Twitter and her reply, you know, thank you. I've listened to your shows. She's a very nice woman. Um, you know, I understand you guys would love me on X-Men. We'll see what can happen. And then we get Realm of X, which should have been a slam dunk, but was given all of the editorial authority of nothing. And then uh, we had Dark X-Men, which was quite literally if our Spider-Man dreams uh, merged with X-Men. And this was also a great big editorial nothing. And what do I mean by an editorial nothing? If I tell you that there are 10 rules to a universe and that there are 11 books and that 10 of the books get to change something about that universe and one book gets to do nothing, that one book has no editorial influence. Those characters are left in either the exact same position that they started in, or they're in some reasonable facsimile. These two books are very clearly meant to be footnotes on the wiki, not meant to be character redefining. And that is a shame because these two creative teams did beautiful jobs telling stories about characters, not just facilitating a plot. I really completely agree. Um, this is even it's tough because it's even one of those things where I don't know, you know, if you're if you're a kid who is 16 right now who dreams of becoming a comic book fan or a comic book writer and Dark X-Men was one of your big reads that like made you fall in love with Madeline Pryor, there's basically nothing that you can reference the way that people are like, "Oh, I'm writing Children of the Vault because I read Mike Carey's Supernova's arc." And I loved Children of the Vault. Um, There you go. Uh, There's nothing to pull out of Dark X-Men to be like, well, I really loved Maddie. So I did. I mean, like I everything that's there, I think if it never comes back again, it will be like so the Mercy Crown really cool. But like, I don't feel like the Mercy Crown is going. I feel like it's going to come back immediately as just like a, a. a one-off tool to fight Orcus. Do you think this iteration of Gambit is ever coming up again? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't see, you know, Havoc being half dead is, I mean, I, I guess all of these things could come up again. I just feel like they're probably not going to. And on top of that, they're just not quite things. It's like, it's not as though Havoc, uh, 
found out that he can access a different kind of energy and it's a death energy so therefore somebody else can make that a part of havoc's character um multiversal maddies maybe but i doubt it uh it was really well written it just yeah it really was specifically kind of seemed like it was art the architecture was there for it to be inconsequential same thing for uh grunbeck's realm of x all of the characters in this at the top of their game and written by somebody who seems to understand how each one of them shouldn't sound like a shade of herself you know, I went back over some of uh, the Valkyrie and Thor stuff that Torin Grunbeck did, and I think I maybe realized that some of the voicing can maybe run together at times in a Grant Morrison way. So I'm yeah. saying a real cool club, you know what I mean? But this felt like, like, and admittedly, it's like 17 different characters at one point. There are way too many people in Realm of X at one point. But it really did feel like I was reading a multitude of characters instead of one person's vision yep. for all of these voices, which yep. at times that is my biggest strike against Dark X-Men. Uh, Steve Fox is an absolute talent house when it comes to understanding, especially the women of the X-Men, which uh, all too often gay men think they do. Uh, but Steve Fox seems to actually understand, right? Uh, way far more than a Facebook message board. But... Um, they all kind of sound like Steve Fox's very cool voice uh, in a way that I think is Aaron Sorkin-ish. But Realm of X was the most separate, unique voices on characters uh, of all of these titles, maybe. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And separate voices, but also separate uh, and spiritual character identities. You know, Great Danny... Call. Danny is doing something very different than what Ilyana is doing. Uh, and it's, you know, she also doesn't choose to do the thing that most people do, which is have them spend a ton of time being best friends, which I love. Don't get me wrong. I love when the new mutants are best friends. But we do, we have gotten a lot of it uh, over the last 10 years, over the last, you know, since Decimation Era, when new mutants started coming back, there has been a lot of, don't forget, the new mutants are best friends um and there i think the, every oh, i'm so sorry no go for it uh there is a special sort of like bonding and you know many of us project romantic or sexual yeah. and some but, of it is yeah but it's like a power rangers team yeah. they live and die by this tiny little command center right you know every once in a while it's fun to see them not being best friends like let's talk but being best friends like i got your back on the mission uh and we're just gonna do the mission for this for these four issues we're just gonna do the mission i really loved that um uh, she got mary right down to uh, just a really small element that for me was just like this is a mary story Mary has a bit of a romance with one of the guys in Vanheim that leads to him kissing her. And she's going to go back and still be in love with Wilson Fisk. And if this is not a thing, this is not a story about how Mary cheated on Wilson. This is a story about how two people whose morals are so flexible, uh, they have no spines or any sort of you know bodily structure at all. So it's probably okay if while in another dimension, they kiss another person. Like it's just, it's one of those things that just says, you know, uh, 
Rogue is probably never going to... Rogue certainly does not kiss Wade at the end of Uncanny Avengers, even though those two have had romantic stuff at one point. Uh that's just never going to happen. It would people would not accept it if Rogue was just like, yeah, you know, I was in other world, so I kissed a guy. But when Mary does it, yes, because Mary burns shit to the ground when she wants. Mary will commit crimes if she feels like. Mary's husband will murder a guy in his own house. Uh, they probably don't super duper care if the other one steals a kiss every now and then. Um, hoes in different timeline zones, exactly, Tori. So I just, it's such a minor point, but it was just like, yes, this is, this is a merry moment. Um, she got to be, go. Well, I just wanted to jump in on it. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like the way I can sum up their marriage is I can imagine like Hammerhead or, uh, uh, I don't know, Mr. Negative going up to Wilson and being like, you reek. And I mean, reek of cum, violence and blood. And I can just hear him saying, reminds me of my wife. Yeah. Like, it is truly, she is such a no shit, balls to the wall supervillain and superhero and whatever she chooses to be. That by using her as an opportunity to properly redefine the sort of nature of polyamory in the Marvel Universe, perhaps in the way that Hickman failed with Gene, Logan, and Scott. We're able to see a an exploration of yeah. a complex sexual identity through somebody that we already see as so sexual. It's kind of obvious that she would be someone in an open relationship. And I really love you pointing that out. And other than that, she gets to have a really good uh, heroic story. She's not... Uh, this isn't necessarily a good guy type of heroism, but it is a we found the side that we're fighting on and we're fighting on that side. Uh, and Mary fights and you know, she is a powerful character. It just, it's funny. Um, I feel a little bit stupid in our last discussion about gang war. I just kind of went on for a while about how uh, realm of X hadn't ended and we didn't know how Mary got there. Well, realm of X actually had ended at that point. <laughs> Uh, oh, it I got shortchanged with four, not five. Right. And I assumed it was getting a fifth issue. <sighs> and I assumed that uh, they would do more than just say, and then they went home and then have Mary show up in um, gang war for the first time with no real, you know, and now I'm really concerned because the Mary that I have been pretty focused on since August is or a little before august uh is a you know potential mute is a potential x-man she is a member of the mutant nation her husband is playing the exact same not quite good guy but heroic game from the financial financier supreme angle uh playing both sides of this situation with emma and tony he is helping the mutants he he wants to because his wife is a mutant he's picking aside um you know he's not all good but seeing all this seeing these two throw their lot in with the mutants and have the potential again not to be good guys not to be scott and gene but to fight on behalf of the mutants and potentially do some good as a result to go right to uh we're doing gang war 
I want to make a, a comparison that hopefully works for people. Yeah. Right. So, um, I'm from New Jersey, so legally I'm required to think that Bruce Springsteen is a national treasure, and of course he is. But uh, he is not the definition of Americana, and I grew up a New Jersey boy who was super into John Mellencamp. And uh, so, of course, I have my Johnny Cougar albums, Mm -hmm. and then I have my uh, Johnny Cougar Mellencamp albums, and then I have my John Cougar Mellencamp albums, and then I have my John Mellencamp albums. And that is to say that this gentleman who initially started under a pseudonym wanted to slowly transition to his own real name and uh, in fact did during the course of going on a date with Moira Rose. But what would go on to happen is he would have an incredible career where he would have to then be like, no, I'm that other guy too. And we never really accepted him changing his name in a lot of ways. I mean, ultimately now he's 70 and, you know, cranky and cool you know it's a very cranky kong situation he doesn't care what any of you think he really doesn't as long as he plays uh key largo intermezzo i really don't care um but end of the day we have trouble when somebody like captain america changes to nomad we force him back into captain america i really want to make an argument here what i would love is if the position could change instead of changing a person to a different name I would love to change a functional purpose in the Marvel universe. There is no room for the Punisher in the Marvel universe anymore. It just, it doesn't work. And now that Frank has a spot in weird, weird world, what a horrible thing to ask me to say with my speech impediment. Um, you know, I I think that we don't need this new Joe Garrison guy. I mean, please don't get me wrong. Very handsome design. And I know everybody working on it is really trying to do something. I just don't know it's the thing. Um, I would really rather a Punisher-esque hero villain in Kingpin alongside his incredible wife. I think they represent that sort of darkest side of superhero-dom. He could really play that role and imagine him coming to bat in crossovers and Matt not being able to say a fucking thing. And Electra being like, Matthew, put your feelings away. Shut up. Just do the thing. We have a job. And like the idea of who Wilson has become in the last. I mean, I literally remembered watching it's Kevo is going to cringe when Wilson kills that man with his car door uh, on Daredevil. I literally wept saying he is the perfect man, like like literally sobbing on the floor. He is perfect. Um, I'm. I just think he's perfect. <laughs> he's, he's a fascinating character, and I think one of the things that has come up as as a, a as a newer, I've now back read a lot of Wilson stuff, but like as somebody who's experiencing a lot of stuff, kind of fresher, um, Wilson's vibe lately has been a lot more. I will do whatever is best for myself and then the area around me. Um, I am the law and order mayor. I want to keep New York safe and I know the best way to do it. And I'll kill a ton of people to keep New York safe. But I... God damn it, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, we've done a lot less of the... Vanessa, we've in the comics especially we've done a lot less of that unhinged thing and a lot more of the i'm in control 
because I know what is best. And I think that that can translate really well into, I think these guys, the mutants, I think these guys are doing what's best. I'm behind them now. Um, I will be the new Sebastian Shaw that um, isn't so self-interested but can figure out how to be self-interested while also enriching the people I've thrown my lot in with. I don't think that's entirely unbelievable and I don't think that goes entirely the route of altruism um, or selflessness. I think you can still be a really great anti-hero. And again, you know, Mary just... The reason that I'm saying all this about Wilson, but it all applies to Mary too. Uh, Mary is very self-interested, but also wants to put herself in situations where she, you know, uh, the environment is good for others as well. So anyway, I mean, I just, yeah, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, I want to get this last one discussed. Uh, Uncanny Avengers... Has never been a good idea as a title <laughs> since its inception. You're muted. Oh, gosh. That's why my horrible jo- I, It was like the universe was trying to stop me from making this joke. Uh, Uncanny Avengers is sort of like imagine Chad Hunt finally made just like a full-on gay penetration scene, and it's just the worst thing you've ever seen. Rogue as an uh, Rogue as an Avenger, as an X-Man as an Avenger, should be the best title that I read every single month, especially when you've got Penance, you've got Captain America, you have a who's who of what makes the Marvel Universe my personal emotional playground, and then you put in fucking Hydra Cap. I cannot think of a story I hate the way I hate Hydra Cap. And yet here we are talking about this monstrosity of a character uh, some five years after the nightmare that we had to live through with this. I, I don't want to say nightmare again. Save me from myself. Yeah, I mean, you you nailed it. I, I this is this title once brought us the uh, don't call me mutant speech from Havoc. I mean, this title... Oh my god, you went full remender. That's gross. This title has always... This is the portmanteau thing again. Uh, but it's like it's the opposite of what's happening with Spider-Man. Like, it just is never working here. I love the idea of an Avengers and X-Men have to work together squad. But it seems like, the, you know, they always call it the Unity Squad. And the idea is, no, we actually we are brothers in arms we are soldiers together we fight for the common good and it is so rare that the book ever addresses the thing that like one of my favorite moments of all time or a bunch of different moments but emma post decimation and post uh bus getting blown up putting Carol in the coffin with the kids yelling at Tony saying, you guys are not our allies. You guys never show up when we need you. And this goes all the way through to Avengers versus X-Men. And then this thing happens where they just go, no Avengers and X-Men are friends because they're both superhero teams. And it really actually needs to be, we have to work together and we can work together well, but man, is it difficult because we both 
do things the way that we do them. There's we both screw up sometimes. Uh, we we both make good points, and it's not that we are putting that all aside for the sake of unity. It's that we have to work together to save the world. And how are we going to put that aside? And this book is just it does the same thing again. I love that Cap is all against Orcus. I really do, but. I just, I don't know this. I just feel like we're retreading the same territory where nobody can quite get a, a real grip onto what this book needs to be to make a, a real point and a real difference and to be interesting. Well, and I think the other problem that this book suffers from is that it's so eager to recapture an identity that was never really realized. You know, something that we talk about a lot is the projection of the perfection of Krakoa is actually just like six or seven issues because between pandemic issues and the fact that it only was like two months before everybody was like, yeah, Fallen Angels, not great, that we realized that maybe this wasn't the perfect era. You know, I think... Uncanny Avengers is looking to recapture the idea that Uncanny Avengers was going to save us all, mm -hmm. and it didn't. Nope. You know, Rick Remender is like, I'm going to, I don't want to say something really actually controversial, but like Seth MacFarlane is unbelievably talented. The guy can write a sci-fi show like nobody's business, and what a goddamned vocalist. Um, but... Like Rick Remender is like the dark version of Seth MacFarlane. What if somebody as talented as Seth MacFarlane was just eager to tell stories that made me cringe? And uh, the energy that he is, I mean, those cakes uh, are legend right there that we have framed oh, yeah. up so beautifully. But uh, other than that, at what cost the cake? Um, you know, but. Rick Remender's storytelling has so many beautiful hallmarks that should interest me. He wants to talk about mutant human relations as it relates to the identity of what it means to be a minority in a majority world. Oh God, he took the wrong side. Um, then we have the opportunity to talk about multiversal children of some of the most fascinating. Oh my God, they're just awful. And then he has the opportunity to do an incredible. Oh my God, it's Axis. And so, like, every time Rick Remender had the opportunity to do something cool, he did a Rick Remender. And so, um, when you talk about things that are designed to romanticize an era, this is trying to harken back to that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was, this was the most C to me. Uh, I, I don't think it was horrible. I really yeah. did this. I genuinely um, did it. Yeah. I don't think it was horrible, but I just, it never did anything for me. Uh, it seemed pretty obvious that it was going to be Hydra Cap. And then I thought, uh, that's too stupid. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> they're not going to do it. And then that is what it was. Really hated the Brotherhood of Mutants that they put together there because the blob for the past five years has been a well-to-do bartender. Um, I would have much rather seen him go work for Wilson at the Hellfire Club. This was insane. I just, and what do we, what did we get out of this? This was, this didn't even do what Alpha Flight did, which is like, give us a, a great story or like a really solid story about a resistance team that finished their mission. Um, these guys, you know, they they got the 20 mutants from that were in Krakoa North 
to Chandelar. That was all they needed to do. And they stymied a petal of Orcus. Um, you know, the Firestar Unlimited comic, she has now infiltrated the narrative petal and is running it. So there are little places where people are like chipping away at this, at the Orcus idea. It's just coming. It's not clear. No reader can juggle all this. So, like, you really have to sit and make a chart of what the status quo of the X-Men who are fighting against Orcus is and how they've chipped away at them. And it's just unfortunate that, like, in some of these bigger books, you don't get a final thing that's like, okay, we took care of X part of Orcus. Stage is now set for how this is going to flip when we do this this next phase instead they're all just like chaos 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 story getting told plot point plot point end to be continued in the fifth season of brooklyn 99 there is a storyline where the captain of the 99 the recently passed andre brower who gives one of the most compelling performances on a sitcom i can think of uh is up for the commissioner of police and he's up against a number of other people some of them much older one a woman who is much younger and he has a whole idea to put in a social media squad in each precinct Hmm. <laughs> and the much younger woman goes mm, i would just eliminate precincts altogether and he's like what Oh, God, I'm a dinosaur. And, you know, Uncanny Avengers kind of came up to me and was like, I would put a social media presence in each precinct. Mm -hmm. And as the reader, I'm like, I would eliminate precincts altogether, ACAB. <laughs> and so, like, this just really felt like such a complete misread of what I was looking for from a book that was meant to promote the uh I don't even want to say the overall unity of the Marvel Universe, but I I guess the cohesion of the Marvel Universe. Were we meant to think that this version of Uncanny Avengers is supposed to carry the banner for the universe the way Uncanny Avengers by Remender was meant to be the ongoing event title at all times? I sure hope not, because at best, this represents a footnote in the fall of X, let alone the bigger footprint of the Marvel Universe at large. Not to mention, this isn't even a Remender character. Hydra Cap is a Nick Spencer thing. So it's like, this isn't even he was like, I didn't get to do my whole thing with that character in Secret, uh, Secret Empire. He was more like, do you remember that time Captain America was a Nazi? What a good move. Well, to be fair, this was Duggan. This wasn't Remender. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. I meant to say that Remender was the earlier era of Uncanny Avengers that we were hearkening back to. Yeah, like Duggan and Duggan also didn't Duggan do a one of the other uh, Uncanny Avengers runs? I think he did Volume Three, which is my favorite thing to reference in terms of uh he wrote something that should be one of the biggest things that's ever happened in the marvel universe and it never gets brought up again vision meets another vision type robot and they have a lot of sex and children and then we get the tom taylor vision series right which is a different woman and set of children having nothing to do with the ones that ever come up uh so anyway i mean like marvel just keep, marvel keeps doing this to themselves uh i yeah um this was this was a real mixed bag so many great creators doing so much with what they were given but they were really just not given any 
roadway to participate in what comes after. And a lot of them really weren't given any roadway to, to onboard. So, you know, I don't really know what to do with it. I love the biggest thing for me is like, I would kill for more Torin Grunbeck, Van Heim, mutant, bring Thor into the mix stories. You know, how can mother mother if you won't let her mother the truly the question of the year yes i think part of the problem is these miniseries are being treated like they're not the same thing as the ongoings but the ongoings themselves are moving in arc structures such that they feel like individual minis with ongoing collective numbers not to mention half of these minis actually have collective numbers on them representing what they are in the bigger picture of marvel legacy numbering it really starts to feel after a while like what is the difference between a mini and an ongoing this is just a way to pay people less sometimes yeah they're not doing less than the ongoings and if you're asking me which one of these felt like it should have been an ongoing uh uncanny avengers for sure not just because it's the staple book but because i can't imagine putting this group of people on a team together after the hellfire gala and not saying it is representative of the overall direction of the marvel universe as a whole yep and it's especially when you think about where the avengers avengers title is it does sort of feel like for as much what? as I don't with that, the book that's not shipping so that Avengers Twilight can have a month all to itself with its 54 covers. You know, give me something here. Uh, and like, I, I, I keep saying I like that Avengers book, but um, I, it feels like Marvel doesn't especially care about or for it. And uh, this one this one could have continued. There's no reason why why it couldn't have, why it has to be attached to any of this Krakoa stuff. So it just leads to more of the same, like, I don't I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, I would have probably had an alternating creative team and I would have had the other team written by Gail Simone. I love that. Um, same exact cast of characters. Yeah. But uh, this cast of characters written by Gail Simone, Rogue, Deadpool, Domino. Uh, yeah. Did I just project that I wanted Domino in this book? And uh, you did, but you're Penance. you you are correct. Like, uh, it's... I meant Penance. Uh... I wanted Domino in the book so bad. Mm. Um, you know, Tori, your question of at what point do we think these minis will just be self-contained trades instead? You know, we're seeing it a little bit more at DC, but still, a twenty-dollar buy-in when you don't know that you like anything is a lot more to ask than when you can check out maybe one issue online for a dollar ninety-nine, or if you wait two months, you can check out the whole thing for free on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, it really becomes the difficult question. I would, I would kill to be picking up fewer books, but feeling like. You know, like I, I keep saying, like I, a sixty-pager uh, once a month for certain things would make me a lot happier than these uh, these five-issue ones that sort of go with a whimper um, and just lose steam from the audience. And that's the, one of the really frustrating things is I read them all. And I'm like, hey, who wants to talk about that wild ending to Children of the Vault? And thank God I have, you know, two partners that are good with that. But like when I reach out to the world at large and to comic fandom, most people have given up by the time we get to the end of Children of the Vault or the end of Alpha Flight. Uh, and it kind of sucks when you're like, no, I'm committed. I'm buying the mini. I'm buying the, the third uh, Betsy Braddock Captain Britain mini. And just nobody 
cares anymore. So I would so much rather it be a 60 page one time thing and just have everybody get their shits and giggles out in that moment and then go get the, you know, an, another one that is about another character entirely. It's why I think video games are facing such a complicated road where, you know, video games are truly a trillion dollar industry and one of the only ones that is a functional ongoing industry that can rely on those figures. And when you think about the amount of time that goes into a game, I'm looking at you, Insomniac, you know, 2030 X-Men game. That's realistic. You know, they're not going to do a game before they know what they're putting in the MCU. That's probably still changing by the day right now. Yeah, that's character models are really fucking expensive, man. If they have to keep changing it for whatever the MCU is going to put in that movie. They're <laughs> they also have to write and develop the entire game period. Just, you know, all of the pre-planning, you know, the entire user experience, what the workflow of the game is going to be. That's years of pre-development. So that's two years. By then, once they start development, development, that's another two years to do that, you know, actual coding. But the thing is, four years in, we're probably not working for PS5 anymore. Nope. So now we've got to figure out what the PS6 is looking like. Well, as did we... you Pikmin 4? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like, the, the, I think depending on where, you know, there's so much we don't know, but I don't think it is as though they are, you know, they can't make this game. In t it's just, it's such a difficult process or anything it's a lot of different factors uh and a, a big one being you're not going to put something out for a system that nobody's going to own by the time you're ready to start selling so if that means that it takes seven years because that's how long it's going to take to get on the ps6 which is going to make the most financial sense then yeah you're stuck with it because then you guys would be pissed if this game was a financial failure and they never made another one so I'm so glad that you said so many passionate fact based exactly in the direction I needed you two things. There I am. Okay. There you are. Um, video games really suffer from that exact problem where a video game takes six years and then people are done talking about it in two months. Yep. You know, a comic takes four to five months to really make reasonably speaking, but a trade now that takes six issues uh, across five months each. Now there's an overlap process, probably takes a year to make a trade. You know, and so now you've got this year long trade experience. Okay, let's talk about an omnibus. An omnibus contains 36 issues. That's three years. That's a run. Great. The day the run is over, nobody wants to talk about it anymore. It's special when it's Immortal X Men or uh, Immortal Hulk or man, we're kind of stuck with Immortal as the adjective. But how many people are like running back and are like Rose and Canny? It did stuff. Now, I definitely picked a questionable run in the first place. I guess that's my Cerebro Austin sword to fall on. But um, I really do think that one of the things that we're talking about at this point is $4 a book plus $5 for specials. You know you're getting a special at least once a year. You're looking at 13 issues. I'm sorry, but this is a small house to collect the X-Men line. And when not 
everything respects the reader, we're left in a position where some of these books really should be 90 page specials, 100 page specials for 10 bucks on Comixology. And if they're so damn good, then you print them. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that matches up with give me that one release. We'll talk about it for a week, which was kind of going to happen anyway, because when it is five releases, we talk about it the first week. But then it's basically dead after that. We're talking about the next thing. It's so wild how many number ones keep showing up in my collection. Uh, and I, it, I just, okay, that's fine. But maybe we don't do so many number twos that just nobody gets excited about. And then you, get, you the producer, get upset that nobody cares about the number twos. Yeah, that's another thing that I am maybe a little bit concerned about with the face of the current state of X-Men. Why y'all getting mad that we don't like what you're making? Make books we want? Uh, something that I really find troubling about the nature of X-Men currently is when I look at the rosters, they're not the rosters people are clamoring for online. Now, my whole perspective about the nature of the X-Twitter community is that's about 5,000 people uh, talking about sales of about 500,000. You know, 1 to 100 isn't a great ratio. So I don't think that those truly represent the voices of the average reader. They represent the voices of the passionate reader, which is something so important. Those are the people that are going to buy no matter what. But that's then the problem. They're buying no matter what. And they'll come back every five years. Marvel has pretty good data on that. So when Marvel's thinking about how to program, they're just not thinking about what people online are clamoring for. But then what we're starting to see as the internet exists longer is the ability to go back and go, mm, I'm looking at all of the reviews from that era. They're terrible. I'm not going to read that entire era because the one for 100, the one very vocal percent have made it very clear that that six years isn't worth buying. So, uh, you know, I think that's a, a really significant thing to think about. We're no longer just talking about a changed market. We're talking about a changed aftermarket. Now I'll be interested to see how all of this, the fall of X, plays into that aftermarket in the years to come. Evidently, though, Jean Grey is a good book. So says Allie Galactic. So Allie, we'll I'm so glad you love Jean Grey. Uh, she's, you know, as always, we're kind of holding out for her. So we'll see where that goes. And now we start the uh, fall of the House of X and the rise of the powers of 10. And <laughs> the balancing of the scales of Y and the remastering of the game of Z. I am truly frustrated by the nomenclature that we're seeing um i love the symmetry of the visuals with the nomenclature but outside of the value of that symmetry this has to sit on a shelf and it has to make sense a finale i don't know kevo i guess this is really a question for you uh and yeah. okay because i've only seen the first season and a half of it and, um, you know, for me, Claudia Black will always be Val Malderon. So fucking hot. Um, but Farscape has never been something I really got into. 
Kevo, you got into Farscape through the Peacekeeper Wars, and then you went back and experienced the whole series. I don't think there's anything that, as a new reader, I would pick up Fall or Rise of House and Powers of Tens of X, of Five, of Eight, the Cat that Ate the Rat, that, you know, that whole bit. Mm. How do you, you know, how do we feel about something where the finale doesn't stand on its own and only really stands as an iteration of the... I guess the beginning of the work itself. Teague, do you want to respond first? Since you know the material better? No, I mean, the, the point is, like, I know the material. I'm the guy that's kind of like, I guess I'm going. You're the guy. Does this, does this do a single thing for you is really the question. Um, I, unfortunately, it's, it's, I think, more going to be a time will tell thing. Yeah. Uh, it depends on what this leads into, uh, and you know, I I can even I can even wrap that into the Farscape response because you unbelievably lovingly collected all of the Farscape comics for me when they started releasing them, and you know they were interesting at first, but they started doing weird stuff and doing weird things with characters that I had loved that had been left in a really good place with the Peacekeeper Wars as the series finale of Farscape, and so. I have never fully finished the comics. I've read a little bit about them, but uh, because I felt like they were doing so much to undo the fine work that Peacekeeper Wars did in a way that I wasn't enjoying, that made it harder to enjoy those comics. And since, you know, collecting comics and reading comics is hard for me with the ADHD, I just, you know, let it fall off. Uh, But I think it depends on what comes next for the X-Men and how that reflects on the Krakoan era. You know, I know that's something that everyone responded, uh, everyone I know responded unbelievably well to. And so if it is not respected in such a way, I know that's going to be upsetting. I can also liken it to a lot of the stuff that's going on in Doctor Who right now with Russell T. Davis taking over as showrunner. A lot of people are saying, yeah, steamroll everything Chibnall did. And Russell's like, no. I respect what came before me. Uh, and, you know, I'm really curious about what that means in its entirety. He's mentioned stuff like the Eighth Doctor mentioning in his one TV movie that he's half human. What threads is this guy going to pull at and will we be happy with it? Time will tell. And that's that's the truth of a lot of these things. Uh, so it's going to hugely depend on what comes next for the X-Men because, you know, it's not ending. And that's one thing that we can say for sure. The X-Men are a staple. And whatever comes next, there will be something. So we'll have to see what that'll be. You know, and just from this image alone, taking a look at what should be the quintessential people standing behind Xavier, uh, you expect it to be, you know, Scott and Jean. But instead, it's Cable and Emma with Scott and Jean seated, seated comfortably in front of him it kind of changes the conversation just a little bit in terms of who's in what position. I think we're going to see a a new face of the X-Men where perhaps it's not Xavier's men anymore. The X stands for who the fuck knows. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that as a guy who changed this show from X is for podcast, uh, which was X-Men is for podcast to X is for show, which is uh, who the fuck knows what we're going to talk about that week. Uh, You know, I I don't love the fall of X. Uh, I actually didn't love the any what was it, it was like um, House and Powers. Then it was Dawn of X. I think I don't know that I've loved anything after Dawn of X. 
I think after those first 12s, I was kind of bummed. Um, as Ali Galactic says, X versus Sever is for show. Um, hubba, hubba, hubba. And uh, I really, really feel like this could have been a creative death knell for the X-Men if it weren't for the fact that this is a uh, you know, it's a franchise at a multi-billion dollar studio that's never going to let something worth this much money die. But uh, if not, this was a, a pretty into the ground thing for me. We had a team of 23 at one point. I think maybe seven currently read comics. That's the world we're in. Uh, if I could just add to your point about this too, because you're talking, uh, when you were talking about how this is Xavier standing in the middle here, uh, this is unrecognizable to many people as Charles Xavier as well. Yeah. Uh, I am on another podcast sometimes recently where they were talking about the, you know, common visual perception of Charles Xavier and him being a wheelchair user. And I'd be like, not for some time uh he's not even wearing that helmet anymore i i can see uh he's looking kind of daddy here and this is an unrecognizable charles xavier to me uh yeah, you know gene looks like gates mcfadden uh you know this is a lot of stuff and i think there's a lot of things where even when something is a staple uh you can find ways to try and reinvent it uh and hopefully Something like this and what you're saying. Tori just pointed out he's not even shaving. He's got a beard. Uh, hopefully something like this indicates that even if uh, they are moving away from the Krakoan age that so many loved so much, that they are still going to be moving in uh, interesting new directions. Well, We love new directions. And with that, I think we're uh, definitely at the wrap-up point for this episode. TK, you got anything left? No, you know, we'll see what happens next. Next week, uh, the, next week is the rare week lately where there's just not that much coming out. But there is just Fall of the House of X for X Men issues. It's been a hot minute since we've had that kind of really slow release from from the X office. So we'll have that one issue to think about as a group, and then we'll go from there. All right, and until then, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find me at the usual places, Kev O'Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Uh, Teak, where can the folks at home find you? You can find me at TK Elemental. Nico, where can everybody find you? Nico Action, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I want to thank everybody that was in the audience this whole awesome episode. It's so incredible to have you all with us. You can check the show out at X is for show on all your socials. And until next time, we got three things we need you to do. Number one, you got to stay safe. Number two, be brave. Number three, evolve daily. And we will see you all real soon. I didn't put up the signal. I'm sorry. I need a second. Still. I'll just dance. I appreciate that. Okay. We'll see ya.